Welcome back to The Foreign Desk. I'm Lisa Daftari. This week, we will continue talking about an imminent Iran deal. Is it in the works? How close are we? And why are we hearing about this in such secretive ways? Why all the secrecy and why aren't we hearing all the details from the Biden administration, who appears to be doing whatever they can in secret and back channel ways to get that deal and to break it all down for us and tell us everything he knows. Uh, Gabriel Neronha, who is a great friend to the foreign desk, you've read many of his uh, analyses and, and commentary in our articles on the foreign desk. Uh, he's the executive director of Polaris National Security and also a fellow at JINSA. He previously was special advisor for Iran at the Department of State under Secretary Mike Pompeo under the Trump administration and, and as the special assistant for Senate Armed Services Committee under Chairman uh, John McCain and Jim Inhofia. And you are always welcome here on the Foreign Desk, Gabriel. Thank you for joining us once again. Absolutely. It's always a, always good to be back with you, Lisa, and, and uh, join the Foreign Desk community. You know, Gabriel, um, you are one of the most um, knowledgeable and also humble, I will add, uh, quite humble, um, analysts and um, commentators on this issue right now, only because, uh, not only because I should say, uh, you are, are extremely uh, knowledgeable and well-read about the region, but because of your very unique perspective and your uh, experiences sitting right there, the front lines, uh, understanding what this country's foreign policy has been regarding Iran for the past decade or so, uh, and unfortunately has changed very much, I mean, drastically. We're talking about 180 degrees, which to begin with is probably very, very damaging, um, you know, with regards to dealing with a terrorist state, you would hope that we would have uh, con continuity between administrations on how to deal with a rogue enemy that is not only, um, you know, has uh, American blood on its hands, that's going after American assets in Syria, Iraq and the region, that's funding terror groups all throughout the region uh, through proxies. And of course, it's human rights abuses back at home. And not to fail to mention the fact that they're, they are going forward with their weapons program, which is exactly what a nuclear deal is supposed to stop. So with that being said, um, you know, from where you sit, tell us what is the latest and how is the Biden administration dealing with Iran? What have they done? What do they hope to do? And is a deal imminent? Well, it's actually, I'll, I'll start a little bit with the past just because it's going to be important for, for what's happening right now and, and the future. You know, when I first moved to, con worked in Congress eight years ago, um, uh, Iran policy until then had been actually quite bipartisan. There'd been a, an understanding that it, it was a really significant threat that we needed to push back on, on the mullahs in Iran. Um, and then when the Biden administration, the Obama administration started working their deal, um, there was so much concern in Congress that they, they passed a law, the Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act, so that Congress would have a voice in whatever happened. Um, we kind of know how that happened, how that went. Um, Obama submitted his deal to Congress. Congress ultimately didn't have enough votes to block it. Um, and, and so it went through until President Trump withdrew. What we're seeing today is some really interesting and, and concerning developments, especially with regards to that law and how that's affecting upcoming negotiations. So the Biden administration is looking to basically circumvent any role of Congress and, and by proxy of the American people to understand what's actually happening in these Iran negotiations. So the Biden administration has been having sort of secret, uh, what they're calling proximity talks with Iranians. Um, that's been with uh, White House officials mostly 
going to Oman, going to UAE, uh, and being in the same hotels or right next door to Iranians and having messages ferried uh, between them. Um, none of this has been really disclosed to Congress. They've had to really yank it out of them through sheer force. Um, and and what uh, appears to be the case is that they're trying to negotiate sort of a short-term uh, interim-style arrangement, which they are pretending is not a deal or an agreement. They are pretending it's just sort of people magically coming about to the same conclusions on things. Um, this is all very much an attempt to circumvent that law, um, which, which says that any deal, any agreement, no matter what form it takes, has to be submitted to Congress. Right. And so uh, I'm happy to go into the details of exactly what's happening, what's being sort of appears to be agreed to. Uh, it's important to note that without the deal uh, being submitted to Congress, there's no way to actually ever really fully know uh, everything that's happening. Uh, until the public has the chance to see the agreement that's being negotiated. Right. And and that's the point, right, Gabriel? It's like, if it's a good deal, why the secrecy? If it's if it's going to benefit America, U.S. foreign policy, uh, national security, rather, uh, the region, it's, if it is a good deal that's going to stop the Iranian regime from moving forward with a, with, with a weapons program, then why the secrecy? Great question. And, and I'll even give the administration a benefit of a, of a doubt almost and say, you know, what if it was, you know, maybe not the greatest deal ever, what if it was not a great deal, but not the worst deal, they could go and argue those merits to Congress. They could go and argue those merits to the American people, right. but they're not even trying to do that. That also tells you just how dangerous and probably bad uh, and then, the deal is. I think is it's like hard for, for the average person to wrap their mind around why our elected officials would want to give the Iranian regime a gift of a deal and they wouldn't want anyone else to see it. They wouldn't want anyone else to check it. Why? Why give them this deal? Why want to shake hands with a terrorist regime? Why want to give billions of dollars that we know will end up in terrorist hands? Well, I think a lot of this is because of diplomatic mismanagement over the last two and a half years that has allowed Iran's nuclear program to advance to a pretty concerning point. Um, again, when the Biden administration took office, uh, Iran was still, you know, six to eight months away from a nuclear, having enough nuclear enriched material. They hadn't started any weaponization activities. So they were still a year, around a year to two years away on that front. Um, since then, Iran is now 10 days away from enough fissile material. Um, they're beginning the weaponization process. So the Biden administration feels that it has you know, no choice but to negotiate, which is a problem entirely of their own making. Um, so that's why they feel that they need a deal um, because what they don't choice want. do they have? Well, you know, there's the option of, in, and there's a reason, you know, Iran's had a nuclear program for most last 20 years, but never had a nuclear weapon. And the reason for that is, is one word and it's military deter, or two words, military deterrence. Um, Iran, as long as Iran can believe that we won't allow them to get a nuclear weapon and we will strike them if necessary, then Iran doesn't want to go down that path. Right. That's been why Iran didn't really uh, accelerate its program that much during the Trump administration right. was they were rightly afraid that the United States or Israel would, would take military action on them. Right. So that is the only true way to ever permanently solve Iran's uh, uh, or or prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. The alternative is also a permanent um, uh, deal that actually uh, ends Iran's nuclear program, 
realistically, I don't think that's possible. I think uh, Iran would never, uh, the Iranian regime would never actually agree to any deal like that, including uh, in a, if there were, say, a second Trump administration, I don't think they have any intent on negotiating that away. And so we are left with not the greatest options there, what to do with Iran um, and, and what to do with their nuclear program. But what this administration is looking to do is just sort of a bad, bad solution to this difficult problem. I mean, why should we believe? I mean, and I don't I don't have any um, sources or citing for, for this. I'm just speaking hypothetically. Why should we believe that the Iran regime doesn't have the weapon already? I think if they had one, um, they would we would know we would one be able to test uh, atmospheric testing um, if they have tested a weapon. Um, we have very, I will say we have uh, the best intelligence agency in the world. Um, and um, that would be something it'd be pretty shocking uh, for them to get a weapon and, and us to not know about it. We knew about the Soviet Union before they exploded theirs. Um, we knew about the North Koreans, the Ira- the Indians, Pakistanis. We, we know everyone who has a nuclear mm-hmm. weapon. Um, the other thing is, I think we would see uh, Iran start bragging that they have a nuclear weapon and that they are virtually uh, unassailable at that point. Right. They, they do have a, 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 a record of bragging and really running their mouth. So I don't think they could keep that secret for sometimes long. You're, on, you're on, definitely on, right about that. Sometimes saying things they don't actually have, claiming that True. they have hypersonic missiles, which I, I kind of doubt, saying they right. have quantum processors, which they most certainly do not. But look, uh, doesn't, that, doesn't that just show us how much they believe they have the upper hand when they are the ones, you know, chest thumping and they're the ones exaggerating and they're the ones running their PR machine because they, they have the luxury of, of, of having that with the West where, you know, they'll believe it. Um, so we're at a point where you've established that, that, that the Biden administration obviously wants the deal. They're trying to do whatever they can to circumvent Congress. They're trying to work behind our backs. They're trying to give us minimal details in order to push this forward. They believe in their ideology that this is going to be the best way to quote unquote curb uh, the, the, the regime. We don't believe it. We haven't seen it. They've continued enriching uranium. They've continued with all their bad behavior. So now we're seeing two actions by the Republicans in order to try to at least, um, put some boundaries on on this first uh subpoenaing um brett mcgurk and rob malley right to get information on this secret deal and second legislation introduced by 33 lawmakers to force the president to submit any sort of sanctions relief for iran uh through congressional review i mean the republicans are doing everything they can to stop this but how far has this gone can they stop it do they have a chance through these parameters and, and I'll add, I've talked to several Democrat offices in the last couple of weeks, and they're, you know, there's a lot of concern on the Democrat side about this as well. Um, there's been a lot of, obviously, we've, we've seen a lot of uh, concern by by Republicans, but it's not just limited to them. Um, and one thing I would note is um, Congress. So there's the law, the new um, bill that the Senate uh, introduced um, that would do everything we needed to do if it were passed in the law, but it's going to be hard to get them uh, to uh, give any uh, floor vote to a Republican bill. Um, The key power of having the majority in the Senate is you get to control what gets a vote and what doesn't get a vote. And so this is an important signal, I think, that Republicans Mm -hmm. are serious about having a voice in this process, but it's going to be really hard to get to get anything passed in the law this way. 
The subpoena measure is is very powerful, especially for the State Department. Mm-hmm. But the executive branch um, in the White House has long um, exercised what it calls executive privilege to shield White House officials from testifying before Congress. So Brett McGurk is actually, uh, who is the Deputy National Security Advisor for all things Middle East, has been really taking a, a major lead on these negotiations recently. He's the one who went to Oman to meet with the Iranians. Um, and it's very difficult for Congress to get anything from him, um, even through subpoenas, which the White House will generally try to ignore. I mean, it's, you know, we've seen for the last uh, eight months, Iranian people come out onto the streets and, and give um, the White House another option, right? Support regime change. That's all they're looking for. Uh, and Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State, President Biden, although they expressed some sort of solidarity with the protesters and and kind of delivered these very weak uh, kind of verbal slaps on the wrist for, for, for the executions, we haven't really seen any sort of real outrage from the White House, and they've definitely made it very clear that they will not support regime change. Isn't that the easiest way out of this? Isn't that the third option? I mean, I, I posted this morning, if this is a great deal, why the secrecy? And of course, as always, there's one person who comes and tweets and says, Lisa, are you saying there should be a war? Why are those the two options? Either we bomb Iran or we let them get the bomb. And we've bounced between these two very, very extreme and dramatic um, scenarios, leaving that third very obvious uh, uh, option on the table. Well, well, it's interesting. It's it's interesting that the idea that uh, the alternative to diplomacy is war is is a warmongering uh, tweet and slogan used by um, proponents of of uh, of Iran and of the Iranian deal, and they used it in 2015. They said, if we don't pass the JCPOA, we'll have war. Then, when President Trump was looking to withdraw from the deal, it was if you withdraw from the deal, you will have war. Well, guess what? We've been out of the JCPOA for for f- over five years now. There has been no war. And frankly, there will be no war between the United States and Iran uh, now or probably in any time in the near future for one simple reason. Neither side wants a war. Neither side benefits from a war. The United States has uh, all the things it's dealing with China right now with the war in Ukraine. It has no interest in a, in a full on war of Iran. And the Iranian regime has zero desire to face the full brunt of the U.S. military either. So there will not be an open war uh, because there's simply no desire for it in either political um, in either the political leaderships. Um, you know, in terms of regime change, um, you know, regime change is something that a lot of people have predicted over time. It's difficult to obtain. And it's I, I will say it's it's been last 10 years in particular have been a um, hard uh, look when it comes to dangerous regimes around the world. When you look at Assad in Syria, when you look at Maduro in Venezuela, Kim Jong-un in North Korea, these are regimes with um, far, far worse economic conditions than Iran, um, far more political instability than Iran, fa- frankly. And they've still managed to stay afloat, largely because of the political patronage of Russia, of China, that have kept this authoritarian uh, troika and, and and really the authoritarians around the world in power. So obviously, you know, I you know there there's nothing in life that would make me happier than to see the Islamic Republic of Iran crash and fall apart tomorrow. It's very difficult as a strategic planner to plan for it. You can hope for it, you can work to weaken the regime, but it's really difficult to sort of say, okay, well, 
in three years we'll have the regime fall and therefore we have to we can't take xyz uh, course of action that's what is a difficult thing for policymakers in the state department white house even in the trump administration was sort of looking around and saying this would be great this would be the happiest day of our lives but that's not how we can make policy around that uh, presumption i guess what if, what if the people of iran are telling the white house we'll take care of the details we'll take care of the strategy i mean and who knows uh you know what that that looks like well, obviously they they need some help in terms of organization but let's just say they they say we'll take care of it but when you stand at the podium and you verbally say we will support regime change it goes a long way and i know you worked under the trump administration who very bravely and courageously and very um, confidently pulled out of the iran nuclear deal in may of 2018 he campaigned on it he took action he did it and then he started the pressure campaign which did tremendous uh, amounts of damage to Iran, the Iran regime, uh, weapons program, their economy, et cetera. And it really benefited, I would say, paved the way for many of, of the protests we're seeing today because of that confidence and that ability to say the West, we can count on the West. But then you have the Biden administration, which has not been as supportive. Um, I know both the Trump administration and Biden administration stopped short of supporting regime change as a policy. Uh, and maybe you can speak a bit about that. Um, but if you're an Iranian sitting inside Iran and you're just, you know, you're, every four years, you're going to have a different tone in Washington also with the regime. I mean, the regime is probably hoping to get something in the next uh, year and a half because they know come 2024, if there's a Republican in office, especially if it's Donald Trump, it's going to be a very different tune that will be sung. Yeah. So, you know, regime change. And we, we thought a lot about how we talk about and 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 think about regime change in the Trump administration. Um, you know, the first thing that we always thought about was the worst thing you can do is get between the Iranian people and their desire for freedom. Uh, we, you know, you go to the, you listen to the Iranian street, you listen to Iranians on social media. We know full well that they want regime change, that they want freedom. They don't want uh, rule by the clerics. Um, and so what we tried to do was take their side to, uh, you know, one thing I've always heard from Iranians is, you know, we don't expect you to do regime change for us. All we ask you to is stop getting in our way. Right. And that was an approach that, that we certainly took in the, in the administration. Um, at the end of the day, um, you know, something of that magnitude is a question that is uh, left to the president. And ultimately, President Trump um, directed uh, us and, and said in public on multiple occasions that he did not support regime change for Iran. Um, I think that's simply because of, of one thing, and that's the Iraq War of 2003. Um, the American public had a very bad experience with that. Um, the desire in, among Republicans, Democrats, and, and independents, frankly, for, for the idea of doing regime change in the Middle East, uh, it became a toxic uh, term in, in American policy and, and, and politics. And so I think that's why you saw President Trump say, hey, no, I'm really not regime change. Um, but I think an important distinction to make is that he never said we're going to strengthen the regime, we're going to uphold them. It was, I'm not trying to get regime change, but I'm not going to stand in the way of the Iranian people. And you saw that he would tweet um, whenever the Iranian protesters took the street. Um, he would tweet in Farsi saying that we had their back, that we supported right. what they were trying to do. And he has a lot of support even to this day inside Iran. 
And, and that, that hasn't changed. And, you know, it's important to note, Trump didn't tweet in any other language other than English. The only other language he ever tweeted in as president was in Farsi. Um, I'm proud to have been a part of that um, effort. So uh, when it comes to the Biden administration, you know, I, I don't think they support regime change in any uh, manner. Um, in fact, there was a, a story, which I, I don't know whether it's true or not, that uh, an Iranian IRGC official recently said that the United States had passed a secret message basically saying we're not, our goal is not regime change. Um, there's a difference between that, which is really troubling, and what Trump said, which is we do not have a policy of regime change. There's there's a difference of we don't have that policy versus we do not support and are not looking for regime change. The, the difference is subtle, but it is very important, I think. Speaking of, of policies, right now we're looking at the Biden administration potentially giving billions of dollars to Iran's regime to get three hostages back. Uh, I know we have a policy of not negotiating with terrorists. In this case, we are we are absolutely dealing with terrorists. Otherwise, they wouldn't take these political prisoners as pawns. Um, you tweeted about this, saying that you have warned against it. Tell us why. I mean, why is the Iran regime doing this? And why would Washington give billions of dollars to this regime, knowing that it'll just result in them taking more hostages? So this is something that has been, you know, planned for, are advocated for by the Biden administration for over two years now. Um, there's been $7 billion in Iranian funds, which have been frozen in South Korean banks. Uh, the Iranian regime wants it very badly because they want those funds to do whatever they would like to do with. Um, and we've been trying to get three American uh, citizens out. They're they're all dual nationals, uh, Siamak Namazi, Bakker. Um, no. Sorry, Bakker, his, his father has just been released. Uh, and then Murad Tabaz and, and Imad Sharji. Um, look, I've, I've worked on their cases myself for a long time. I feel for them. I feel for their families. There is another way to get them out beyond paying ransom. Uh, I know this because we negotiated two hostage releases. We got Shu A. Wang and Michael White out for zero dollars. We did one for one prisoner exchanges with Iran. Uh, that is the way to do it. Um, and you can do it with pressure. Uh, I've advocated that you can uh, and, and should take all the Iranian diplomats in, the, in, in Manhattan who are there at the United Nations and impose really strict, really strict travel restrictions on them so they can just go between their office and their home. That's it. And you say, look, if you want to go to these stores, to these hospitals, um, to these fa fancy schools, you have to release Americans first. Once you do that, we'll have another conversation. Um, but we need to put pressure on the regime, not give it cash. The worst thing, I think, is if you tell Iranians, look, you got $1.7 billion back in 2016 when you released five American hostages. So that's $350 per hostage, roughly. Well, how about we give you $2.3 billion? That's far, far worse uh, of an incentive for the Iranian regime because they would believe that Americans are the most valuable asset uh, that they could possibly have. And you can just imagine uh, there, there would be far more Americans being ho taken hostage, not just in Iran, but in, around the world by terror groups, if they think that that's the price that an American hostage yields. Um, it, it's mind boggling. I know every time you and I speak, it's, um, and, and we know all of this, but it's just when you connect the dots, it makes absolutely no sense uh, to jeopardize our national security and to empower uh, a terrorist regime, give them billions of dollars to put back into global terror. They're going to put this into Yemen and to Syria and to Iraq. And we had an article at the Foreign Desk, and I believe you were quoted in it about 
the Iran regime doubling down on its on its efforts to target U.S. assets inside Syria because they want Russia and Iran have decided to push uh, Amer the U.S. out of Syria, uh, and and that will result in American casualties. And um, it, it's 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 really mind-boggling to watch this, particularly as we know none of it will be stopped. Not the nuclear program, not the terrorist spending, not the human rights abuses, but yet it goes on. Um, I want to ask you a bit more about. Uh, local politics. I know a lot of these uh, Iranian uh, activists here in the United States are very busy calling their local uh, representatives. They've come up with the MASA Act. They have come up with other petitions. Um, how effective are these petitions? I mean, do you encourage them to keep going? I mean, how can they be more effective in getting the, the, the Biden administration to, to hear them out? Look, I think the number one thing that constituents can do is, is make clear they don't support any type of sanctions relief for the Islamic Republic uh, as long as it continues, you know, sending weapons to Russia, building a nuclear program, killing Iranians in the streets, supporting terrorism around the world. As long as the Islamic Republic is, is the kind of regime we see today, there should never be sanctions relief and we have to increase pressure. Um, that's the most important thing. If, if lawmakers all collectively understand that their constituents have a certain view on this and they feel very strongly about it, it makes it politically difficult for them to support the Biden administration's policy or any deal that comes before them. Um, again, I think the, the most important thing that Congress can do and has to a certain degree done so far the last two years has been to prevent um, the deals that the Biden administration has tried to do. Um, I'm very proud of my part to help kill the effort to go back into the JCPOA. Um, I think when that was happening, one thing that was hard was the Iranian diaspora wasn't that activated yet at the time. And so I felt like it was sort of me yelling against the wind. Um, mm -hmm. And then since the you know Masa Amini revolution, what we've seen is thousands and thousands of Iranians calling their congressmen, calling their senators, and I've heard it from congressional staff. They say, this is a completely different landscape we're in now. Right. And we couldn't imagine supporting going back into the JCPOA precisely because of all the public outcry from the Iranian community against these deals. Right. So in order, I mean, you just sparked a, a thought. I mean, let's let's end this on a positive note. Let's just say a Republican comes into office in 2024, regardless of, of who you're supporting. I'm just talking about really a 180 on the Iran po on, on Iran policy. Right. Let's say a Republican comes into office in 2024. You have this activated force that is. Uh, you know, the, the anti-regime activists inside the United States, the Iranian-Americans, you have the, you know, Europe, there's a lot of pressure on the European uh, Union as well from Iranians living in Europe. What could potentially change? I mean, could the Biden administration make this ironclad so that it will not be reversed? I mean, I know that's something the Iran regime is asking for. They're saying, oh, you know, we'll get back into a deal, but we don't want this to flip-flop again in 2024. What could potentially be the future of, 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 of U.S. policy vis-a-vis -vis Iran in a way that will benefit uh, and, and lead to a free Iran? So the good news is there's no way for any uh, deal to become permanent unless it is passed by the Senate as a treaty. Um, you need 67 votes in the Senate to do that, uh, which would mean, look, if you can, I, I certainly hope there's a day where we can get a treaty with Iran uh, that can get 67 votes. My hope is that's with a free Iran. And that's why it's going to be so easy to make a deal uh, with a free Iran uh, where they don't mind giving up the nuclear program. They don't mind and, in fact, have no desire to support terrorism. Right. Um, and so, you know, that's that's certainly my hope. 
Uh, I think if you saw a Republican administration, um, you would see a complete reversal of what we've done uh, in the last two and a half years. You would go back to a maximum pressure approach on the regime. Regardless, I think, of whether it's Trump, Pence, Haley, DeSantis, they are all one, I think, really good thing is on the Republican side. And again, with many Democrats, too, it's not just Republicans. There's a broad recognition that what Trump did to the Iranian economy and their ability to project power was an incredible, incredible achievement. Um, and I think that one thing you would see is regardless of who's president, um, there'd be pressure back on the mullahs, there'd be pressure back on the regime. We would be destroying the regime's ability to fund terror, uh, their ability to, to oppress their own people. And anytime the Iranians are taken to the streets, you would see, I think, tweets, again, in Farsi from the president supporting the Iranian people. Um, that's something I certainly look forward to seeing. And I think that alone, you know, there's a lot of things that when you're in the executive branch, you can do to help uh, the Iranian people. Um, not everything is public. Um, not everything you see in the newspaper, but there's a whole lot of things that you can do to weaken the regime. And if you have the Republican administration, those things would be happening once again. Right. Or or a different uh, Democrat administration. Or a different I mean, Democrat. Like you said, we have a lot of friends in the in the Democrat Party that understand foreign policy, that understand this is not a partisan issue and are not supportive of an Iran deal or sanctions relief and are very much supportive of a free Iran. So um, thank you for that reminder. And thank you for all your your uh, continued hard work on on all of this. I know you have um, a lot of eyes and ears on you and your work. And, and we're very grateful for that. Um, at least uh, a, a sane and logical mind uh, on, on Iran uh, and, and the regime uh, is, is really, um, you know, uh, providing the knowledge uh, and, and briefings to Congress and, and to members of Senate. So thank you for that. And uh, we wish you lots of luck in your continued work. And you're always welcome to come back here at the Foreign Desk and tell us about everything going on. Thank you so much for joining us. And for those of you who would like to subscribe to our podcast, go to youtube.com slash Lisa Daftari. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts and sign up for our daily top 10 email at foreigndesknews.com. See you all next time.